Welcome to episode 71 of the Romantic About Baseball podcast. I am your host, Adam C. McKinnon. My co-host, Jim Passon Jr., is on assignment right now, assessing the risk of buying a baseball team. In the meantime, though, my guest today is Craig Calcaterra. He's a returning guest. Craig, thank you so much for coming back. Tell Jim to put it all in muni funds. Do not do not buy the Dodgers. It's a, it's a money pit. No, it's t- it's it's a it's too risky of an investment. I mean, you could just invest in the stock market. You know, <laughs> I, I I love that. And of course, we're talking about Rob Manfred, who, as we're recording this, just had a press conference talking about how actually no owning a baseball team is not a great financial deal. You're you're better off. <laughs> Simply investing in the stock market, which is demonstrably false by any metric you could ever imagine. Right. But, Franti- uh, frantically Google's Bitcoin. Where is it at right now? <laughs> or whatever the I, Washington I, Nationals partnered up with. I, I mean, say what you want about Rob Manford. He has a lot of things. He's not a dumb man, but he does believe every single other person on the planet is dumb. And that's the <laughs> thing that I love about him. He's like the parent that like you never change your tactic like as to like it's it's like trying to explain Santa Claus and like you just never <laughs> let it go. Like you, you swear your kid at 15 still believes in Santa Claus and you're just, <laughs> no, you just and keep- you're just not letting the lie go. <laughs> Just keep letting the lie live. Just you know, right. that that dog went up to the farm up north, living a happy life where it could run more. I, that's that's right. That's it needed it needed more space. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, by the way, um, so uh, based on your on your newsletter this morning, first off, I wanted to lead off with uh, congratulating you on a clean sweep of the Larry Householder Divisional Series, going three and zero. Uh, and, uh, and I, I, I saw that was a big win for you. So I wanted to make sure I congratulated you on that. Yeah, that's fantastic. I just, the short version, I, I had a client, um, when I was a lawyer 15, 17 years ago, 18 years ago now, uh, who was the Ohio speaker of the house and he was in big ethical and legal trouble and had a DOJ investigation against him. And I represented him for a couple of years and he skated, got off on the charges we both went our merry ways. I'm a writer now. He just got indicted, like, you know, in the biggest corruption case in the history of Ohio after he made his political comeback. And uh, I wrote a thing about him for a, for a local paper here last summer. And I got an ethics complaint from the Ohio bar uh, telling me that I shouldn't have been talking about my client or something like that. But I won, damn it. I defended ha. myself and show that I was right and and I won. And so, of course, I, I've got the receipts and I'm putting that in the newsletter today. Yeah. So, you know, Craig Calcaterra, don't don't uh, he keeps the receipts, folks. Don't. Uh, That's all I do. I, <laughs> I am. I am the scaredest, most cautious man on the planet. I will never do anything reckless. And that's actually kind of boring. And it's probably cost me a lot of girlfriends and stuff in my life. But I'm never going to get in trouble either. There that's you are. right. See, it's, it's a more convenient lifestyle, really, when you think about it. Born to be mild. Um, born to be mild. That's right. Uh, so I wanted to actually talk to you. You know, I had so I had this idea, like you know, we're just going to jump right into the book and everything like that. And maybe all this is kind of related, but um, you know, taking the whole current situation to another level, um, it's really it's really something like that press conference was really something. And I'm not sure what anyone really expected to get out of that or what we're expecting right now. 
But uh, I think to me, and you tell me if you think this is correct, but like the sentiment that's getting lost in all of this to me is the short-sightedness of us demanding a 162-game season, the longest you know season in professional sports uh, that we've talked about in past years of shortening, oddly enough, and but we're ready to uh, get that in order to skip an equitable contract for the players. I yeah I, yeah I, I mean I think that's the so what baseball lives on what baseball has always lived on is habit routine history normality the sense that baseball is always there and more so than any other sport if you start messing with baseball in any way people get upset even if they don't consider themselves big baseball fans if you're like a hardcore nfl guy and you Mm -hmm. kind of pay attention to baseball you don't even care if if like roger goodell came out and said well next year we're going to go to 27 games and the players are going to do this and we're going to get rid of helmets and you'd go okay well that's the league they they know (laughs) what they're doing in baseball if you like move one piece of furniture people freak out and Rob Manfred and the owners know this, right? So the, they know that if they can talk about, well, the season is threatened or we don't want to have anything disrupted, that, that's like the, the baseline for fans and sports media. And so if players try to push a little bit to get a little bit of a better deal, if there's anything that tries to get changed, that considered the bad thing and that is the built-in advantage that rob manford has as baseball's commissioner he uses it pretty well um he you know if you if you're always saying hum baby this is how it's supposed to go and and that person over there asking for something else is is wrong and radical and is going to threaten what you love that's a pretty powerful position to have at least in the uh in the arena of public opinion right it's it, it's it's fascinating for me to watch now. And, you know, I feel like hopefully we've moved past the 94 comparisons. I'm sure we haven't, depending on, you know, who you talk to. But it it does make me wonder, like, it does seem like the players are really, I don't know, I don't know that they could, they're doing what they can do here. It, it, to, it seems like to both sides, this issue makes you look worse. <laughs> you know, it just, yeah, it just seems like a pretty straightforward thing here. It, yeah, it's not really accurate to both sides it mm-hmm. because just structurally what we have right now is a lockout. We don't have a strike. Uh, and if you not saying anyone should know these labor law intricacies off the top of their head, I don't damn even it. Know they them. should. I, I, I know. Right. I talked to Eugene Friedman, who is a labor lawyer. Mm-hmm. He's a subscriber to my newsletter. He's active on Twitter. You probably see him if you're into this kind of stuff. Uh, and he makes a very good point. A lockout is a permissive sort of thing. You, you, the, the owners did not have to lock the players out. Right. They could continue to work on a collective bargaining agreement, uh, even in, even if there's nothing now. The old ones expired. They can continue to play. They can play a season. And in fact, when the 95, 94, 95 strike ended, uh, they didn't have a collective bargaining agreement for like two years they went back to play because the courts told them they had to. Right. And, and then they just played on the old deal until a new one was reached. They could continue to do that now if they wanted to. Um, and yeah, they, the players could strike if they wanted to, but only if there was a, a good reason for it. There has to be a good faith reason for it. Um, so they could play the season right now. Major League Baseball could just say, no, nah, lockout's over. Spring training starts next week and, and go forward. But they're not doing that. And so 
for the, to cast this all as the sides aren't disagreeing or the players' rejection of the owner's offer means that the season is in peril. It's not really true. It just means that that offer is in peril. Right. <laughs> you could you could just start the season right now. They could keep talking. It's no reason why they couldn't do that. Right. And and this all to me all kind of plays as it plays out. It makes me it makes me think about the way that we as fans react to this, the way that we follow this, which is a swear, not a planned transition to the book that, you know, you've got coming out uh, in April, which normally would be opening day. Um, <laughs> rethinking fandom, how to beat the sports industrial complex at its own game, knowing what we, and, and I, I'm sure that all of this, uh, you know, I know how long it takes to write a book. It's uh, there's no way you planned on all this. You probably saw it coming, but didn't plan it. To talk to me about like how this book, the premise of it, and you know how it how it very much ties into what's going on right now. Well, I, I didn't think this was going to be happening. <laughs> um, <laughs> I I started writing this book I don't know in like fall of 2020 probably, but even then I was writing I think at my newsletter or previously at NBC that yeah we're probably going to have a lockout or something like it, because you could see it coming. But th this isn't really about that so much. Mm -hmm. This is more about not what the leagues are doing, not what the, the players are doing, not that sort of thing. It's it's about how we shouldn't even be victims to them. We, we should not allow what I refer to in the book rather dramatically and kind of ridiculously, <laughs> but I like the term, as the sports industrial complex. They should not dictate what we do as fans, nor should... Uh, our own traditions and history and inertia as fandom mm -hmm. as fans do uh we grow up into fandom we we uh, inherit sports fandom from our dads or from our older siblings or from an uncle or something like that or, or from the people that we go to school with because it's regional and we decide that we have to have this loyalty to you know i the case i use i i was born in Michigan and lived there till I was 11. So I became a Detroit Tigers fan because everybody was a Detroit Tigers fan. And you're supposed to be a Detroit Tigers fan. It's not something you question. You just do. And and that's fine because that's a part of tribalism. That's a part of, of, of community. But you get to this point where the leagues and the teams, they know this. They know that that works in their favor. They know that they've got us. You mean they and exploit it. <laughs> And they exploit it to a huge degree. And we don't have to be exploited like that. They do all kinds of bad things. Seat licenses, tanking, uh, you know, rebuilding a team and, and trying to just go for, for cash and getting rid of players that you love. Turning the ballpark experience or the stadium experience into a luxury thing that only rich people can enjoy. And, and those of us who aren't able to afford it cannot enjoy in the same way we, we expected to a long time ago. There are all kinds of things that happen in sports that rely on us not giving them up. And in this book, I don't say, hey, just forget sports. I mean, that you could do that if you want. You could say, uh, yeah, you know, it's it's just a thing. It's 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 like not watching a TV show anymore. You can do that. Imagine all the time in our lives we would get back. <laughs> that's true. That's absolutely true. Um, and there is a chapter in there where I talk about how I used to be a huge college football fan and I'm not anymore. And I gave up college football for a bunch of reasons. And wow, that was amazing that I did that. But that's not my point here. I, I love sports. I especially love baseball, but I love sports. And and as I argue in the book, I, I, I just got I picked up a new one. I just got into soccer. So I, I'm adding my sports. I'm still net up on sports. But how do you be a sports fan 
without being exploited or at least trying to minimize that. And and I talk about various ways we can do it. Sure. And, you know, I haven't read it yet, but I I wanted to ask you about a, a couple of specific uh, concepts that you talk about and, you know, more baseball specific. And one of them was one that, you know, I, I think we were we were kind of I was victim to this, too, is that the tank tanking in particular. So in baseball, you know, everybody it seemed like 20 from 2015 to now everyone became farm system enthusiasts. And mm-hmm. a lot of that, and I'm not saying it wasn't there before. I mean, Keith Law existed way before that. But like the thing that I uh, noticed was that it was almost like when the Astros began this process and began publicly doing it and other teams began to follow suit. I remember in Atlanta in 2014, you know, something like it, whenever when the when the Upton brothers clearly weren't going to work out, and uh, mm-hmm. you know we went and the the Braves went that route of of rebuilding, trading away. Um, I had a very specific experience where I was trying to explain to my wife, who's a very casual fan, she loved Jason Hayward. Oh yeah. Explaining and Craig and then explaining away why and Craig Kimbrell and explaining to her why this grown woman explaining to her a casual fan why like we had oh it was such a good idea we had to we had to trade Craig Kimbrell we had to trade Jason Hayward and just the blank look of like well now they don't have any players I like or I don't I know (laughs) and I just I look back on and I was like I. I I don't know. It was like a moment of clarity where like I didn't have to explain it that way. Like we had to. We didn't have to. We could have afforded well, to do that, you know. That was my thing. And here's the thing, you know, I, I I'm a Braves fan. I talk about it in the book, you know, I while I was in Michigan, I moved to a place where I could only see the Braves starting in the mid 80s. We talked about this before. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and you know, I was a Braves fan going back to like 1985. And really that 2013, you know, 93 win team or whatever it was that they blew up, that kind of really irked me. And it didn't irk me because I didn't understand the nature of rebuilding or I didn't understand how farm systems are built. I'm a sabermetric guy going back to the 90s. I was on Rec Sports Baseball back when no one was doing that stuff. I'm like good buddies with... Exactly. I was like, I'm good buddies with all the original baseball prospectus people and stuff. I I really understand it. Trust me. Um, But why do I have to view baseball that way? I don't. There's this thing that happened when, when the older generation were little kids, they wanted to be the center fielder for their local team. And then something happened around people my age or maybe a little bit younger where we no longer wanted that. We wanted to be the general manager. Mm -hmm. And part of that is fantasy sports. Part of that is computer. In my case, definitely it was computer simulations where you build a team, you know, that's the kind of thing you do. And then sabermetrics are obviously huge on that because it's from the front office's point of view. It's how you build talent, assemble talent and maximize all your resources. And that turned into uh, minimizing your cash outlays. And so you internalize all this as a fan and everybody who's running a front office right now is of that mindset as well. And they're probably being told by a very rich owner, hey, make me more money. Right. So that's not the only way to enjoy sports. I don't have to like the fact that they got rid of Jason Hayward and Craig Kimbrell and and other players that I liked. I got why they did it. And obviously it worked over the long term, but it was pretty miserable for a few years. 
And then it got better. But, you know, my life isn't inevitably long. I, I only have several years to enjoy baseball. Why do I have to, as a matter of course, enjoy crappy baseball for a few years to get to what they're going to tell me is good? But the thing is with the Braves, you're right, it worked. They won the World Series. But how many other teams have done this two, three, four times in a row and never have gotten anything out of it? Those if anything, poor Orioles that- fans. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Orioles fans and uh, the Rockies are on like their third rebuild or something in a row with nothing to show for. There's a bunch of them. And, you know, for every Houston Astros, Chicago Cubs and now Atlanta Braves example, there are five, seven, ten examples of teams that are never in it because they're always trying to maximize things other than fan enjoyment. I want to enjoy sports as a fan. That's my argument in this book. So, and that that brings me to one of the other points that I it makes me think about. So, and it and it starts in Tampa for me. So when I look at the the Rays present to me the ultimate testing of this, and I think I think I, I know you said it's ridiculous, but I think it's a good term: the sports industrial complex. You know, from the from when you know from when Bill James came in and sabermetrics took over, and now you know the front offices they look like think tanks more so than front offices anymore. But when that became in, and the emphasis on value, the Rays seem to have kind of mastered that in a way. But mm-hmm. it seems to have gone to like such an extreme like and and i'll use this example like um the rays the guardians cardinals dodgers and yankees they've all won 900 games since 2011 the rays have done it spending roughly seven hundred and sixty thousand dollars per win the yankees and dodgers are over two million and no other team has this ratio of wins to you know uh lowest the amount of money spent per win so on one hand, you you kind of applaud like the the non baseball fan in me says, "Oh, well, that's just good business. You spend less mm-hmm. money, you get more value." And there's absolutely any one of us would probably think the same way if we owned a baseball team. Risky investment, I know, but if we did, we would probably think the same way as any business does. But why is it so different in baseball? Why? Why does that seem so dirty, so antithetical when, you know, they're handing out belts every year to the Rays executive, you know, for the championship belt for the most uh, efficient team? And you see the Rays is like the GM factory of, of baseball. That's not objectively that I can't see that as being good for the game, but it's the very principle of how businesses work, isn't it? It, it absolutely is the principle of how businesses work, but... Almost no other businesses other than, you know, professional sports and and entertainment companies have fans or they shouldn't. If they do, you probably should examine your head. Right. I mean, no, no one is out there rooting, you know, for uh, for, uh, you know, Berkshire Hathaway companies or uh, don't say Tesla. Don't say Tesla. Don't say. Well, yeah, you're right. There are people rooting for (laughs) Tesla. I forgot about that. But for the most part, you know, if there's a trucking company from Des Moines, Iowa, uh, I yeah, they better be efficient and they better maximize return and they better do all those sorts of things. That's how you stay in business. It, but you're not, you don't got a bunch of people like trying to get enjoyment out of that trucking company. You are with baseball. There's a, there's a second component there. You need to enjoy it and you need to foster loyalty over the generations, not just, hey, this was a good season. And th- so the example I kind of come up with with the Rays is, yeah, they've been absolutely successful. They won 100 games this past year. Uh, before that, they won, you know, 90 some games a couple of years in a row they've they've been outrageously successful 
want a pennant in there and everything. Um, who, if you are a 10-year-old kid or a 12-year-old kid in, in the Tampa Bay area, um, and you're not necessarily a hardcore fan who appreciates dollars per win, or you're not thinking about building the farm system, or you're not thinking about five-year plans. You're just a guy who, a kid who wants to go to a game once in a while, who wants to emulate a star. Who, who, who are you looking at? And, and are they going to be there in a year? Right. And the idea is probably no. If you go to like the Rays baseball reference page right now and like their career, you know, like the entire franchise history and you look at their all-time players by, you know, production or whatever, you know, you got Evan Longoria, Carl Crawford, Ben Zobrist are, are the top three. Well, those guys are all long gone, obviously, some yeah. because they just aged out, some because they went away. <laughs> um, but there's there's no sort of face of the Rays right now, who we necessarily know is going to be there. Wander Franco, that, that's possible. It's quite possible. possible. But Wander Franco is, you know, he just signed that extension that is going to be eminently tradable in a few years. And if anyone is going to trade the Wander Franco to rebuild the farm system, if they have a couple of years, uh, you know, that have gone downward, it's going to be the Rays. Right. I don't know. It's, it's, it's a little disheartening. And again, I don't want to take away anything. I know there are, I know I have friends who are Rays fans who are super into the Rays way and, and, and appreciate what they do and, and understand it. And in some ways root for that too. And I don't want to tell them that they can't like that. What I do want to say though, is I don't think most people are like that. Most sports fans are like that. People want entertainment. People want to look, you know, when I was a kid, Alan Trammell was always there. When I was, a, you know, a little bit of an older kid, Dale Murphy was there. It's, it's just one of those things that you like to point to, and you need to have some sort of connection. And the Rays just kind of don't have that. There are a lot of teams that don't, but the Rays are one. It's it's you you kind of said it earlier, right? We inherit fandom. We inherit it's. There's a sense of and baseball people would call it continuity, right? Or Ken Burns mm-hmm. would call it continuity, where like there's a through line, and you can and you know when I grew up, it was Chipper Jones, and you know he's a little bit of a fucking weirdo now, but I mean he was <laughs> he was there, you know, and he was a prominent player, and I watched him hand it off to Freddie Freeman, and now my daughter, when I say like, hey, who's your favorite team? She just says Freddie Freeman, and it's. It's kind of like <laughs> it's it's like there there's a through line there and you what I what I think about is it kind of in that in that vein that you're talking about like the the pendulum has swung so hard away like it used to be the analytics and sabermetrics were frowned upon and and cast aside even all the way up through the money ball A's to some extent but then now it's swung so hard the other direction that we're as baseball fans we, we're the ones losing out because on one hand we're being pulled in one direction that says grow the game. Well, like you, like you just mentioned, we're not going to grow the game talking about wins above replacement and dollars mm-hmm. per win. Uh, and on the other end, there's no sense of continuity We're we're breaking that apart. And, and so I guess that's where your the concept of your book is very interesting because how do you avoid getting exploited when the, uh, there's a there's no other option ml you know well, i shouldn't say that there's not there's no other prominent option i could turn around and go you know go check out the evansville otters anytime i want but does it have <laughs> the same effect you know well i i have a chapter in there that speaks directly to this problem there i have a few different ways that you know the, the third the final half of the book is about how what to do about it like how can you still look at you it's not just about baseball oriented. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, well, they're you know they're they're ones that everybody's going to say. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. We're never going to do it, but right. you know that's always a good book, right? <laughs> um, 
I I have taken this on myself actually in a in a huge way, and I think it started with that 2013 Braves team. You know what? I still root for Jason Hayward. I'll I'll, I'll watch a Cubs game, and I want Jason Hayward to do well. He doesn't do that well anymore, but you know I still want him to do well. And uh, if I was a Rays fan, and I spend the next five years absolutely loving Wander Franco and he's tearing it up and then the Rays decide to like rebuild again or something and then ship him off somewhere. I'm still going to root for Wander Franco. I'll root for him if he's, you know, playing for the Mets, but I'll root for him. I I think rooting for players is a t- completely legitimate thing to do. Um, yeah, it doesn't come with all the sort of loyalty and that sort of like, I'm going to follow my team to a championship, but I watch baseball for enjoyment. And increasingly as I get older, I watch it more for the moment by moment, game by game enjoyment, as opposed to the we're building for a World Series kind of enjoyment over the course of a year or two. Um, I will turn on a game in August and I and I will watch, uh, even if it's you know two teams that I don't normally root for, I will watch the teams that have players I like to see. That's something that we do have available to us now that we never did before. We used to be stuck. I had TBS and all I could watch were the Braves. I now have MLB TV and cable and all kinds of other things. And I could watch any game almost that I want. And I can pick who I want to watch. And increasingly, I find myself rooting for players or rooting for a team this year that just has come together in a way that's kind of fun for me. And I want to see that story play out. Like, what I, I normally have no love at all for the San Francisco Giants. I was kind of halfway through the year rooting for the Giants just because they're a neat story. Uh, you know, they they didn't they weren't expected to do anything. They assembled a bunch of misfit toys and they had a bunch of veterans whose best days are absolutely behind them that put together amazing, improbable comeback years. That's a great story. And that was a lot of fun to watch over the course of the second half of the season. Um, there are ways to do that that don't necessarily require you to live or die with a team that doesn't care if you live or die. Can I can I piggyback off of a little bit of what you're saying? Because it just brought on a thought for me. Uh, is that's it's an interesting and is probably even a subconscious thing that we do sometimes. And where I remember when Jason Hayward left the Braves, I was just like, well, I wish him well, you know, I'll root for him if I see him again, but I didn't go out of my way to go see him. And I love Jason Hayward. That dude could steal bases. He could play great outfield, all the things that I wish I could do if I wasn't so frequently injured and old and out of shape. So I kind of like, it's almost like once you leave the team, Craig Kimbrell, you know, I know he kind of fell apart a little bit at times, but that was my guy right there. Mm-hmm. It's interesting to me. Yeah, we do tie it to the organization. It's almost like we're outside employees. It's like, oh, all right, see you, we'll see you around the bend, you know, that type of thing. So talking about players and being fans of players, I don't know if the, if you cover this or not, but I think it's an interesting sort of point is that we're learning more and more now in the social media age that players aren't like us. They're, (laughs) they're, they're kind of like, like the rich white guys we hate on Fox news uh, (laughs) are kind of like them. And I'll say, and like, for example, I don't know why, maybe I'm a, I'm into self-flagellation in some way or another. Uh, but you know, I watched the, 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 the picture, his, 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 uh, his video, you know, I watched all seven minutes of it and it was brutal. It was super cringy. And Mm -hmm. it's just one of those things where I kind of, I remember when he like, you know, sort of came up in the league. I, I was really, I kind of like, you know, he was super weird. 
but I, I liked the sort of rebellious attitude, uh, the way he sort of played the league against each other. Like I, I was really into that sort of rebellious nature. Uh, but then you learn, oh crap, he's like a really piece of trash. He's horrible. He's a piece of trash. <laughs> so I guess like when it comes, how do you think from a fandom perspective, you know, yeah, we, the teams, they have their own, we, we, uh, this sort of that element, the seedy element of baseball is tied up in numbers that most people don't under most, you know, folks that aren't invested, don't understand. They don't care about, they don't see, they don't, you know what I mean? It's white collar. When it comes my, to my, yeah, yeah, it's it's weird. It's my personal thing is I'm I'm certainly never going to be the guy that says I don't want to hear anything about you. Just stay on the field and play. I mean, I can't have it both ways. I like it when players are activists. I like it when players support good things. And so I can't just say shut up unless you like the things I like. That's, that's right. Pretty disingenuous to do yes. that. So you know, I would prefer to live in a world where players talk about whatever they want to talk about, live their lives openly. If they want to live their lives out in public, you know, whatever, that's fine. Go ahead. You're going to give me the right to say you're an absolute moron. If you start, you know, I, I look, I really don't want to hear some shortstops uh, uh, impressions of, you know, the immigration policy of the United States. You're probably going to be really dumb and I don't want to hear it, but if you want to go right ahead and I'm going to criticize it at the same time, Hey, if you got something enlightened to say, that's fine too. And of course, like you mentioned, there are going to be personal foibles. There are going to be criminals. There are going to be just absolute creeps and terrible people. There are going to be absolute saints you want to venerate and love. Um, you just sort of take it as it comes. And, you know, my thing is that, you know, for every Buster Posey or Adam Wainwright, uh, who just seems like a genuinely good dude out there, uh, I fine, we'll deal with that pitcher who's not pitching for Los Angeles right now um, because it happens. And, and so the, the problem that cut happens with that sometimes, though, is because we still see baseball and all sports through team loyalty people find themselves having to try to apologize for them or make excuses for them. I, in extreme cases, they don't. I, I have not seen any Dodgers uh, fans out there saying, well, actually, you know, Bauer, whoever is not, you know, yeah, no one's really tying themselves in knots to defend him. But like in, in less extreme cases, you do see that and you see apologies uh, for guys who are just jackasses. Well, you know what? It's totally consistent to root for a team but think that that one player, or those two players on the team that have demonstrated themselves as idiots uh, are idiots. You don't have to want them to do well. And it's, you know, my, I think even before the season started I uh, and before the the really serious allegations against Trevor Bauer came out, uh, I and I'm, I talk about this in the book, I've sort of adopted the Dodgers in a lot of ways over the last several years for reasons that I, I explain. Mm-hmm. Um, I watch a lot of their their games. I like a lot of their players. Oh, you're spoiling when, it, Craig. <laughs> Oh, no, that's okay. That's going to be the one. I'm going to catch all kinds of hell for that one. <laughs> anyway, on, very online Braves fans have already written me off many years ago as not being a real Braves fan, so that's fine. I don't care. Um, We're a weird bunch. Oh, no, no, it's okay. It's fine. I get it. I'm not exactly a team loyalty guy. But If you didn't see Julio uh, Tehran pitch on opening day four times in a row, you're not a fan. Hey, man, I saw Rick Mailer pitch on opening day several times in a row before most of the people that hate me were born. So that's the one I always pull out. But Card it, rescinded. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, my, my, my wish for the Dodgers before all that happened was I hope the Dodgers win four out of every five games and lose every single Trevor Bauer start. That's a completely legitimate thing to have if your team has a jackass on it. 
It's true. And, no, uh, it, it's it's yeah. it's funny because yeah, like you talk when you think about fandom, it's it's tethering yourself to an entity. And whether what I think we've come so attached to is we've tethered ourselves to the entity of the team, which has its own pitfalls. But it, it, you know, tethering yourself to the person maybe on one hand better, and on other and the other hand might be more volatile. Oh, it could be more volatile. It'll absolutely bite you in the ass sometimes. I mean, if if Joe Schlobotnik comes up for the Mudville Nine and you just, you know, you buy his jersey and you get his autograph and you talk about how he's the best guy ever, and then it turns out he's been killing hobos in the offseason. <laughs> I mean, it's it's totally legit to say, wow, I was wrong about that jackass, and then and then no longer wear the Joe Schlobotnik jersey. You don't have to apologize for that. You didn't know. You're allowed to say Oh, I no longer like him. And we have this big problem as sports fans. Loyalty is a weird thing, right? It, it it works on an emotional level, and there's a lot of inertia to it. And and I get it. I understand how hard that is. Uh, but we can give it up. We don't have to view and and consume sports in that same way. And, and that's kind of why I have the the word rethinking in the title. I mean, it's not that you can just stop being a fan. That's hard. We love sports and we have loyalties, but we can think a little harder about what we do and why we do it. And we don't have to support all the negative things that in the past, most of us probably have to some degree because we felt we had to, or we were obligated to. It's uh, you, you're, you're, I just had a flashback to, uh, the fact that I uh, I just moved into a new house and I have a uh, Chipper Jones Mizuno, uh, mm-hmm. you know, framed picture that I, I love. It was a great picture and I have an authentic Chipper Jones jersey and the whole nine, right? And then like my cat's name is Chipper. So sure. it was a spe- it's a, it, you made me think of like when he came out as like a Sandy Hook truther and like an anti-vaxxer <laughs> and I'm like sitting there like, oh man, it's like I'm surrounded by this... Reminders of yes, (laughs) but here's the thing about. But here's another thing you could do. You don't have to also. You don't have to just be like, I support or I reject this player. It doesn't have to be that. There's a spectrum here. uh, Yeah, and you could you could grade on a curve. And with Chipper Jones, that's been a great example because. I don't think I've enjoyed a baseball season. Well, I've written in the past, I enjoyed the 1988 Brave season more than any season in history, even though they lost like 104 games and were absolutely terrible. That's a subjective thing. That's just like because of my past. But 1999. What a great season. (laughs) That was such a great season because for me personally, it was like the first season I could just enjoy all summer long in a long time because I had gotten out of law school. I was no longer a student. I wasn't studying for the bar. I just, I was working a real job, but I could just watch games all season and then you know chipper jones was an absolute monster that year and he just deconstructed the mets in the most satisfying way ever and i will never not love chipper jones the baseball player right i have nothing but fond memories of him as a baseball player also i think he's probably kind of dumb and also he said a lot of dumb stuff verifiably and, and true I could, <laughs> yes I could absolutely think that Chipper Jones is a dumb guy who doesn't know what he's talking about and may even border on the malicious in certain things. I don't know for certain, but I can I can think that. And I could still love Chipper Jones, the player for the Atlanta Braves. And, you know, it's it, a, a good test to this happened. This is a really weird story, but uh, a friend of mine, uh, they're really into like horses, right? And last week- This is already I, off to a great start. 
Oh no, no, this is this is really good. My wife's into horses, so this is like a friend of hers who's into horses or whatever. And they do this thing, these friends of ours, where they go up to like Montana every year and participate in this like cattle drive. It's totally for like rich people, right? Who go up and I want to play cowboy for a couple of weeks, although they do know how to ride horses and stuff. And you go to this ranch and you drink at night and then you go out on a cattle drive during the day. It's like Yellowstone fantasy tour or something. And they went this last year and another guy that was there was Chipper Jones' dad. Larry oh. Jones Sr. Was, <laughs> was on the trip. And my friends, they're not baseball fans, but they know who Chipper Jones is, and they know that I am a huge baseball guy. They know that I like the Braves. And he's texting me from Montana. Chipper Jones' dad is here. I'm sitting every evening having drinks with him, and he wants to talk about baseball and everything else. And so he's asking me to ask him questions, like, what should I ask him? And I was like, <laughs> I couldn't. I was blanking. I had no idea. But the takeaway that my friend had was, you know, Chipper Jones sounds like probably a pretty good guy. Uh, like, you know, he probably means well. He probably talks about a lot of things he doesn't understand or shouldn't talk about. And if you really got into politics with him, you wouldn't like him very much mm. because his dad was very much that way. Yeah. <laughs> but, that, but that does not mean that he did not completely destroy the Mets in 1999, did not help the Braves win the 1995 World Series, did not become a Hall of Famer over a glorious career. Um, that does not take any of that away. You can't take that away from me. I enjoyed it. And, and you're able to do that without having to like constantly check yourself to be whether or not you're being a good fan or an okay fan or an ethical fan. Do what you need to do to enjoy baseball as the entertainment that it is. Right. It, it's impossible. Uh, you know, I, I experienced something of a similar thing where my wife um, works for, uh, he, she works with domestic violence victims. And mm -hmm. when I got, I got my first autographed baseball. I have two autographed baseballs. One of them is very weird. The other one is very normal. And the very normal one is Andrew Jones. And I say, mm -hmm. and I tell my wife, I was like, oh, this is Andrew Jones. He's like the greatest center fielder of all time. I'm like going off all the things. And, and then I said, yeah, he's a pretty good guy too. And I said, you could Google him. And then she Googles it. And the oh, first thing, and I was like, oh <laughs> no, this is like, yep. I forgot all about that. And so it, it becomes this thing where now you're tested like, oh man, like I, my wife works with domestic violence victims. It, is it, it, it trickles into your head, you know? Uh, is this a question of my fandom? Cause how can you? Uh, be a fan and not uh, of the Braves in the nineties and not appreciate Andrew Jones in the same it's way. It's easier. Right. Yeah, I was going to say it's, it's easier as a sports fan than it is in other things. Cause we have this discussion all the time when it comes to entertainment, right? We have it with musicians and movie directors and you get into that, that argument about, can you separate the art from the artist? And yes, you know, you have to make that decision when a Woody Allen movie comes out or when Ryan Adams releases a single or something, you don't have to do that with sports as much because, you know, in a lot of ways, this stuff's in the past. I, I don't have to decide whether or not I'm going to go buy a ticket to go see Chipper Jones play or Andrew Jones play. Right. Uh, they're done, right? It's in the past. You can't take away my experiences just the same way I can't take away the idea that I loved Annie Hall when I saw it. Um, but, you know, I don't have to vote with my pocketbook with players. I can. I'm not going to go, you know, pay to get his autograph somewhere. Or I'm not going to, you know, go start the Chipper Jones fan club or something like that. But uh, we're, it's a little easier as players, you know, as, as sports fans, because these guys do just naturally go away eventually. And it's OK to let them go away, but to hold on to memories that you personally enjoyed for your own reasons. So if you were to say 
you know, when it comes to this book, what's one thing that you hope somebody sits down, reads your book, an avid fan and a, and let's say an outsider or a casual fan, what is one thing that you hope those people, one, one of those people take away from reading, uh, reading your book? I, I would hope an avid fan or a hardcore fan would take away the notion that it's okay to not identify themselves as an avid or a hardcore baseball fan primarily or a sports fan primarily that they could have sports hold a different place in their lives than they do and i'm saying this as a person who literally writes about baseball for a living and consumes it at a huge high level you could still do that and still have it have a, a different place of importance in your life and significance in your life um just perspective with sports and understand that a lot of it's silly a lot of it's not important you don't have to live or die with baseball i would like the idea of a diehard fan or living and dying with a team or identifying you know the stages of my life with this team i would like that to sort of diminish a little bit in in an avid sports fan's life if possible not everybody's going to take me up on that but i would i would think that we'd be better off and sports would be better off if if those people had a different sort of view of it as for a casual fan i would hope that someone who is and i think a lot of readers of this book are going to just be sort of casual fans it's coming out on uh an imprint called belt publishing which has never done a sports book before (laughs) and so there's a there's a a lot of people that are going to read this book that are used to reading about like social justice and uh you know sociology and and geography and you know urban planning and stuff and they're going to read this book i would hope that people like that who like sports but aren't super into it would understand that it's it's completely fine to not immerse yourself and still enjoy it you could be a casual fan you could be i actually have a chapter called be a fair weather fan it's okay to be a fair weather fan. I want you to support your teams when they're doing well, but if they're not doing well or if you don't find them enjoyable, that's okay. You don't got to watch them. Watch them when they're good again. There's nothing wrong with that. That's completely legitimate. Don't be shamed uh, about your sports fandom, either because you have some ignorance about sports or because you only like it when the team's winning. I would like people to to normalize the idea that that's okay. Awesome. Well, thank you, Craig. Uh, the book is called uh rethinking fandom how to beat the sports industrial complex at its own game it's coming out february april 5th april 5th Mm -hmm. april 5th april 5th thank you so much for joining me thank you very much for having me 